Let's go to John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 30. And I had intended to take you through verse 47 today, but later in the week I realized I bit off more than I could chew. So we're going to read through verse 47 because it has bearing on some of the things I'll say in the message, but you're only going to get through verse 36 uh, in the sermon. So we'll pick up part two next week. So chapter eight, starting in verse 30, you can find that on page 894 of the Pew Bible. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham... If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came down... For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would come, that you would... Come by your Spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts to the truth of your Word, that we might see Jesus Christ all the more clearly, who is the only answer to our greatest need, our need to be rescued from our sins. So please cause your Word to come with full conviction and in the Holy Spirit. And with power, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage is rather jarring. 
I mean, Jesus just finished teaching that he is the light of the world. We saw that in verses 12 to 20. He is our only escape from dying in our sins. That's 21 to 24. And that his unity with the Father is what drives him to lay down his life for sinners. And as a result of all that teaching, it says in verse 30, many believed in him. From what we've read to this point in the Gospel of John, that's a good thing. It's even a necessary thing, right? You know John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. What makes this passage so jarring is how Jesus ends up speaking to those who believed in him. We see that many believed in him in verse 30, and then we get things like this throughout the rest of the passage. Verse 37, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Verse 40, you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth. Verse 43, you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil. Verse 47, you are not even of God. Jesus is saying these things to the Jews who had believed in him. And they get so ticked off that by the time we reach the end of this dialogue in verse 59, it says they pick up stones to throw at him. How do you go from believing in Jesus to wanting him so much out of your life that you want him dead? Stoned. What's going on is the same pattern we've seen throughout the Gospel of John. There's there's belief in Jesus. And then there's belief in Jesus. There's spurious faith that has no saving effect because it doesn't come to Jesus for the right reasons ultimately. And then there is saving faith in Jesus that comes to Jesus on his terms and comes to receive him for who he really is and it results in eternal life. What we observe here are the results of spurious faith. The belief in verse 30, in my understanding, is likened to the belief we saw back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. You can go there with me. Jesus performs some miracles, and verse 23 of chapter 2 says, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, very similar belief here, believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. What's really inside the person with spurious faith, fickle faith, is not a heart trusting Jesus for eternal life. Truly coming to Jesus for who he is, people with spurious faith may look like Jesus' disciples on the outside, but deep within them is really a heart that's suspicious of Jesus. A heart that keeps Jesus at, at arm's length, 
arm's distance, that desires no vibrant, meaningful relationship with him. And Jesus knows when this is the case. He sees into the depths of our being, and as the light of the world, he exposes our faith for what it really is. Whether it's a facade or whether it's a fact. Whether it's fake or whether it's real. That's what's going on in chapter 2. And likewise in our passage, chapter 8, Jesus' word goes out to the people. Many believe in him, at least initially. But as Jesus keeps talking, the reactions of these professing believers betray what kind of faith they really have. Many of them are not genuine disciples. They're not authentic followers. As long as Jesus' teaching fits what they're willing to accept, then they believe. As long as they can control him and fit him into their mold, they follow. But as soon as Jesus starts jerking the rug of their ethnic and religious pride out from underneath them, the more he keeps telling them that he is their only hope for salvation, belief ends and it's time to start throwing rocks at this guy. The picture is jarring for us because as God's word, it's pressing the question upon us, what kind of disciple are you? A genuine disciple or a pretend disciple? Are you the kind of disciple that walks away when Jesus says hard things? We've seen this before in chapter 6, verse 66, after Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Or, are you that kind of disciple? Or, are you the kind of disciple that says with Peter, Lord, to whom else shall I turn? You have the words of eternal life. And we have... We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Regardless of where you are today, whether you're not a disciple at all, or you're pretending to be a disciple, or you're a genuine disciple, these words were written to awaken saving faith in you. The kind of faith that leaves you with eternal life in Jesus' name John writes these things to reveal that Jesus is totally worth following and to ensure that when we follow him, we are doing so rightly. We're not just saying things with our mouth, believing things with our head while our hearts remain distant from him. So what makes for a genuine disciple then? Well, Jesus says in verse 31... That genuine disciples abide in Jesus' word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In other words, belief in me is necessary, but this is what that belief entails. It abides in my word. That's what saving faith is in all true disciples. It's a abiding in Jesus' word kind of faith. You don't believe in Jesus and then later down the road become his disciple when you decide to abide in his word. 
No, the only kind of saving faith there is of a true disciple is an abiding in Jesus' word kind of faith. But let's get clearer. I take Jesus' word to be a collective reference to Jesus' word to be a collective reference to all the utterances he makes about his person and his mission, as well as their authoritative implications for our lives. Now, when put together with other verses in the Bible, that very much supports how we view all of Scripture, this entire book, as Jesus' word. In one sense, to abide in Jesus' word is to abide in the entire counsel of God's word. But in our context, Jesus is getting at something more specific. And when you look throughout the Gospel of John, whenever he uses my word or Jesus' word in the singular, it's referring to something of a, in a collective sense. It refers to what he reveals about himself and his mission, as well as how his person and his mission should affect our lives. It's, it's the word the Father has given him. It's the word he has spoken to his disciples while on earth. It's the word that sanctifies the disciple and sets him apart for God. It's the word which the Holy Spirit will then later bring to the disciples' remembrance. That they might write it down for us. Once Jesus has risen from the dead. So this word refers to what Jesus reveals about himself and his mission as well as how his person and mission affect our lives. So the very nature of God's word, of of Jesus' word here, the very nature of Jesus' word, since it's a self-disclosing word that ought to affect us, it ought... It demands a kind of response from us. The very nature of Jesus' word keeps us from turning Jesus' abiding language into a mere scripture memory program or devotional reading or Bible study. Now, do all of those things serve our abiding in Jesus' word? Absolutely. But the idea of abiding in that word means something more than simply familiarizing ourselves with its content. It's not a matter of mere information transfer from here to here. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for this in chapter 5, verses 38 to 39. They knew the Bible well. They search the scriptures, Jesus said, because in them they think that they have life. They knew the Bible well. They just knew the Bible well for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus says of them, you do not have God's word abiding in you. Which is the flip side of what happens when we abide in the word. When we abide in the word, it abides in us. And at least the way the Pharisees were reading the Bible, in that way, means they're not abiding. So it's got to mean something more than just knowing the contents. As crucial as that is, it also means 
we continue responding to his words transforming power. It means we continue to be constrained by its life-giving influence. We keep walking in our lives. We keep walking within the bounds of wherever its light shines on our path. Even when it confronts us and challenges us and convicts us, we don't turn back and stop following Jesus, but we humble ourselves beneath his word and say, to whom else shall I turn? You have the words of eternal life. So abiding is not, well, I read chapter 9 this morning in my Bible, set aside, check mark, scripture Memory and checkmark Bible reading plan. I go to work and leave word, no influence on my life. That's not abiding in the word. The word is to have an effect, an ongoing effect. It goes with us. We are always under its influence. It's shining light on our path that we might see how we go. When we abide in Jesus' word like that, when the direction, the entire direction of our lives is steered by the word, By his word, Jesus promises that we'll know the truth and the truth will set us free. What is the truth he's speaking of here? I don't think he has in mind just any old truth. Just some like general truth. Two plus two equals four. Or some philosophical truth like the law of non-contradiction. That kind of truth is certainly helpful. It's always helpful to live in accordance with reality. But that's not necessarily the truth Jesus speaks of here. Truth in the Gospel of John is always associated with the person of Jesus. Himself. We've expected this development since chapter 1. When John tells us that the Word became flesh... And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Or again, in chapter 1, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's not that God's truth didn't exist before Jesus' coming, but that we see God's truth now bound up in the person of Jesus The Word made flesh. Or again, in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth that leads us to the Father. And one more, John 18, 37. He tells Pilate, Pilate, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my, vo- listens to my voice. And then Pilate says, what is truth? The question remains unanswered because John the Apostle answers it in the cross and the resurrection. That's the truth. That's the truth I came to reveal. That 
is the reality by which you should live your life. So the truth we will know when we abide in Jesus' word is essentially the truth of the gospel. The truth bound up with the person of Jesus himself. It's not just a bunch of abstract truths that we affirm, though it is that. It is a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, and what he has revealed about the Father. It is that truth, the truth of the gospel, which sets us free. When you hang on Jesus' every word about himself, you will know the truth that liberates your entire being from its bondage to sin. There's a lot of truth in this world that may be, that may be able to uh, help you live life and get a good education and keep a job and communicate effectively with others. There's a lot of truth that will enable you to read books and give logical argumentation and even enjoy amazing facets about the world around us. And in many ways, that can be quite liberating for you. But if you don't abide in the truth manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, if you refuse to be transformed by His Word, His message, even if you have all things sorted out philosophically, you lose. You lose in the end because you're still enslaved to your sin. And you will perish in rebellion against God. There's only one truth that can set you free from slavery to sin. The truth revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first point I want to call to your attention. And the the only point we'll end up covering today. We'll cover two more next week. Abiding in Christ's word unites us to the Son who frees us from slavery to sin. Abiding in Christ's word unites us to the Son who frees us from slavery to sin. When we abide in Jesus' word, we are then united with the truth, which reveals Jesus for who he really is, and he is the one who delivers us from slavery to sin. That's the gist of what We see in these verses. The Jews aren't so sure they want to persevere in Jesus' word after all. Because what he just said implies that they've got a real problem. So they give their objection in verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus has just exposed where their confidence ultimately rests, and it's not actually in Jesus, which is why he said what he said. They're banking on their family lineage to save them. They're a lot like Nicodemus was when we read in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. You know, they think their own bloodline which can be traced back to Abraham, is all they need to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is trying to help them see once again, guys, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Their confidence rests in the fact that my birth certificate says my mama and daddy are Jews. 
Now the Bible tells us very plainly that the Jewish people were and are incredibly an incredibly privileged nation. God chose them to be the nation through which he would bring his saving purposes to pass, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 12. Paul tells us in Romans 9, verses 4 to 5, that to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So to be a child of Abraham is an incredibly privileged position, an incredibly privileged heritage to have. But that was all the more reason why they should have trusted in Christ. Why they should have seen that Jesus was their Christ and trusted in Him for their salvation instead of in their lineage. That wasn't the point. Jesus' point is that you're not safe Without him. You're not safe without Jesus, regardless of your race or your religion. Without Jesus, you're in bondage to sin. That's true of all of us. We're not safe without Jesus. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Notice this is a universal problem. It's not, it's not just a Jewish problem here. <clears throat> Jesus says everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So we shouldn't be so quick to read ourselves out of the picture here, even though Jesus is dealing with the Jews. Jesus brings up this universal problem to say that regardless of what your birth certificate says, Jews have the same bondage as the rest of the world. We're all slaves to sin. As elsewhere in the Bible, sin is pictured here <clears throat> not merely as this or that evil deed, but to a master who has dominion over his subjects. Sin is an enslaving power before it manifests itself in individual acts, specific deeds. Paul also speaks of sin this way. As reigning in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. That's what sin does when it's reigning in your mortal body. It makes you obey its passions. When sin reigns in your body, it makes you obey its passions. So to be enslaved to sin means you're under sin's power. It dominates you day in and day out. What you ought to do, obey God, give your life to Him, worship Him in reverence and awe. What you ought to do is what you cannot do as long as sin has dominion over you. Sin is also a deceitful power. According to Hebrews 3.13, it hardens your heart to the truth such that even when the truth is right in front of you, 
you're either unable to recognize it fully or you suppress what you actually know to be the case. That's what sin does. And John illustrates this rather clearly when Jesus repeatedly reveals the truth he heard from God, many times even using their own scriptures, and yet the people remain hardened to his words. Let's look at verse 40. You seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth I heard from God. Why are they trying to kill him? They can't see. They've been deceived. They've been hardened to the truth. Sin hardens you with its deceptive power. The more you give into it, the more resistant you become to the truth revealed in Jesus Christ. Sin also has an enslaving presence. It's not that you're enslaved in this or that context, but when you go over here, you're not enslaved anymore. Sin comes with you wherever you go because sin reigns over you from within you, in your heart. So it follows you around. And as you go about your day, sin is constantly offering you its fleeting pleasures. Constantly offering you fleeting pleasures, worldly desires, which you can't actually see are fleeting pleasures, right? Because you've been blinded to see that they're fleeting. You can't see that they're fleeting, but that's what it's offering you, fleeting pleasures. And then once you submit to these fleeting pleasures, it leaves you with death. It is wicked to the core. Sin promises you pleasure and leaves you with death. It says, come sleep in this bed and leaves you in the grave. It leaves you with death, spiritual death on the inside, Romans 7.13, and eternal death under God's wrath which is what we saw last week in verses 21 to 24. And to top it off, we can do nothing to rescue ourselves from its power. It's too strong for us. I think the history of your Bibles shows you that very clearly, starting with Adam. Nobody in all of these pages has been able to snap the power of sin. Just constant testimony throughout Scripture that we can do nothing to rescue ourselves from sin's power. And even worse, we don't even want the rescue. Not merely because sin blinds us to our bondage, but also because sin makes us content in the bondage. We see that both, we see both of those in these Jews. They're both blind to their bondage, we've never been enslaved to anyone, and content with their bondage. We are Abraham's offspring. Right? We don't need you to set us free from anything. We're okay. The slavery is absolutely dismal. 
Without Christ, we are desperately lost in our bondage. Sin enslaves us with its power, its promises, its pleasures. It corrupts our thinking, our doing, our wanting, our feelings. It's with us all the time. And even the controlling influence within us constantly. And the only reward it leaves us with is death. The slavery is absolutely dismal. But as we see in verse 35, it is no match for the sun. It is no match for the sun. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Jews think they have an automatic place in God's family, but the truth is that they're not in God's family at all, apart from Christ. They're slaves of sin like the rest of the world. The only one who's not a slave to sin in this text is the Son. The Son is able to free us from our sins because He Himself has no sin. So he says in verse 846, he even poses the question of the, to them, which one of you convicts me of sin? None of them can. He himself has no sin, and sin has no power over him. That's been the constant testimony throughout John's gospel, and we saw some of it last week. He came from above. He's not from below, he came from above. He's not of this world. The world has no constraints on him. The darkness has no hold on him. The light shines in the darkness, chapter 1 says, and the darkness has not overcome it. And if sin has no power over the Son to make him its slave, then he is able to free people from its death grip should he so choose. And he did so choose. That's why he came. That's why he came. So the Son is more powerful than sin. Another reason Jesus is able to free us from our sins, namely, He is the Son, the only Son. Everybody in the house, everybody else in the house is slaves, are slaves. That means He alone has the rights to His Father's inheritance and supreme authority to share it with others, should He so choose. And He does choose to do so, right? Chapter 14, verse 2 through 3, in my Father's house are many rooms. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's good news. He's got the rights. He can share it with with whom He pleases and He comes to share it with us. He couldn't come soon enough. Moreover, as son, we've... We've already learned that he's got a unique mission from the Father, which involves going to the cross as our true Passover lamb. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 29. We saw it last week in verses 21 to 24. You see, in God's economy, it's not a matter of the son just telling his father, "Uh, let's just give him the inheritance. Transfer them out of slavery to their sin. We've got the power and the authority to do so. 
No, it's not like that. Because in order for them to gain the inheritance, a price must be paid for their deliverance. Their sins, the sin of all of these subjects who are bound by its power, this sin has consequences. It has the the consequence of eternal punishment. The consequence is the penalty of eternal punishment. That price must be paid if we are to be truly freed. Otherwise, what kind of freedom is it if, if Jesus takes us out of our sins in this life only to leave us suffering under the penalty of God's wrath in the age to come? That's not freedom. No, something else must happen in order for us to have true freedom. So the Father gives the Son a unique mission, which involves going to the cross as our true Passover lamb. And instead of a temporal deliverance from mere slavery in Egypt, like we observe in the Exodus, those covered by the blood of Jesus find themselves freed from the tyranny of sin's power forever. When God freed Israel from their slavery in Egypt at the cost of an unblemished lamb's blood, he was setting a pattern for redemption that would find its fulfillment in the death of Jesus. The cross is where Jesus' blood is spilled on behalf of those who are in bondage to sin. At the cost of God's own Son, God himself liberated sinners from the invisible chains of sin. Even Paul celebrates this in 1 Corinthians 5 with the words, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And that's the very truth which gives him the confidence to tell the church, since you've been freed from your sins, let's not go on living in them. Let's walk in truth. Let's walk in purity. It gives him confidence. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, gives him confidence that the church actually can turn away from her sins. What we once should have done, but couldn't do and wouldn't do, now we can do in Christ. That's really good news, especially when you think about this in light of John's gospel, that the, the idea that true freedom is the ability to do what we ought to do before God. If we look at all the many ways Jesus has revealed himself to these people and they're spurning him, what we're getting is a picture of what the slavery looks like. Jesus comes and he says, I am the bread of life. I don't want that. That's bondage. That's slavery. Jesus comes into the world and says, I am the light of the world. And what do people do? They love the darkness instead of the light. That's bondage. That's the slavery they're in. I will give you living water if you come to me. Mm, no thanks. I am your Sabbath rest. I prefer to find my rest somewhere else. Like my works. Like my reputation. Slavery to sin is everything that keeps us from seeing Christ as our one all-sufficient delight. 
That's what slavery to sin is. And the good news is that in Christ, we can actually see Jesus for who he really is. And it liberates us to run to him. Give me this bread. I want to eat more of it. Give me your living water. Pour out your spirit upon me. Give me rest. My own, I'm, I'm crushed by the weight of everything else driving me nuts. Give me rest in yourself. True freedom is the ability to do what we ought before God, namely coming to Jesus and enjoying Him as our one all-sufficient delight. And Jesus made that possible through His death on the cross. Believers can really turn away from their sin because Jesus' death actually snapped its power. And there's even more. Jesus is able to free us from slavery to sin because He alone remains in the house forever. He remains in the house forever because He is forever. He had no beginning We saw that in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there, eternally with God, His Father. And He has no ending. Why? Because God raised Him from the dead and gave Him the power of an indestructible life. His standing as the risen Son of God can never change or go away. He can never be demoted or conquered by somebody else. He can never lose his rights or his inheritance. He not only purchased that inheritance with his own blood, but God also guaranteed that he would have that inheritance when he raised him from the dead, giving him the ends of the earth as his possession, like Psalm 2, 2 says, and is Psalm 2, 8 says, and is read that way by the apostles. So if the Son sets you free... You are free indeed. He is the righteous son, the rightful son, the redeeming son, and the risen son. There's no other son like the son of God, Jesus Christ. Abide in his word. And you will know this son who frees us from slavery to sin. Even now... Consider any sin that you see in your own life or in the life of this church. Christ is our freedom from that sin. We'll see next week that Satan does not want you to believe that Christ is really our freedom from sin. Because out of his mouth come lies, and he is the father of lies. Jesus just told us that that is true. He is truly our freedom from sin if we believe in him. Immoral relationships, lust of the eyes, gossip, one-upmanship, disobedience to parents, the fear of man... Envy, divisive and quarrelsome spirits, anger, impatience with children, frustrations with this, that and the other. Christ is our freedom 
from sin. We do not have to be enslaved to any of it. Having Christ as our freedom from sin is the basis of our sanctification. And Christ as our freedom from sin is what we continue returning to for our sanctification. Because of the work of Jesus, we can actually turn away from sin. It does not have to boss us around anymore or control what we do with our bodies or say with our tongues. In Christ, we have the power to overcome it, to say no to it, and to run to our new master, the Son, who is infinitely superior and powerful and loving to defeat it for our everlasting good. If you believe, think of it for a moment. It is comprehensive. The rescue of Christ is comprehensive. Our bodies don't belong to sin, but to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Same language here of rescuing from slavery to sin that Paul uses there. Our bodies don't belong to sin, but to Christ. Our affections don't belong to sin, But to Christ, our minds don't belong to sin. But to Christ, our wills don't belong to sin. But to Christ, our schedules don't belong to sin. But to Christ. And every waking hour does not belong to sin. It belongs to Christ if you are His. That's true freedom. That doesn't mean you won't struggle against sin. The Bible is full of examples that tell us we will until Jesus returns. But praise God, there is a struggle. Where'd that come from? Where did your struggle against sin come from? Not you. It came from Christ getting on the cross, snapping the power of sin, raising from the dead, sending the Holy Spirit. So that every passion within you that says, I hate this sin, I don't want it in my life, is blood-bought and spirit-wrought. There's a struggle. Rejoice. Give thanks to God. You struggle against sin. You struggle. Give thanks that there's a fight in you. Every passion in you has been wrought by the work of Jesus And the Holy Spirit. Our struggle, moreover, since the Spirit is our guarantee, our struggle against sin even anticipates the day when Christ ushers in the new age, when all of the ransomed church of God will, in fact, be saved to sin no more, despite what you see with your eyes now. Yes, we struggle now, but the death of Christ really won our freedom from sin, the full manifestation of which will be seen when he splits the skies and sets his feet on earth to bring his kingdom. Despite what curtain sometimes lies over your weary heart some days and only causes you sorrow. We're talking about this at the elders meeting the other day. Despite that curtain God hasn't left us there. He's peeled back the curtain with chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation that we might see where He's taking us. 
He's pulled the curtain back and given us a vision where he's taking this world into the new Jerusalem where we'll forever be freed from sin's nasty influences. Only a love for Christ will fill our hearts and then we will experience the freedom of the children of God. In its fullest sense. But we need not wait to foster that love for Christ. Jesus has given us his word. And he tells us that if we abide in that word, then we are truly his disciples and we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. The freedom from sin that will characterize us in the age to come is the freedom that we can even know now. Not in its fullest, certainly in part. And that freedom comes by abiding in Jesus' word and knowing the truth in Jesus. So that actually does mean that we should be picking up our word more often and reading it. Reading what it says and letting those words influence our character and our passions throughout the day. It also means, however, that we should repent every time we read our Bibles apart from abiding in Jesus' word. We don't want to read the Bible for the wrong goals like the Pharisees did. Bible study is good. One-year reading plans are good. Scripture memory is excellent. But those disciplines are good only insofar as they humble us to the dust. Expose us for what we really are. Slaves, slaves to sin. And then encouraging us to look to the Son for, for, the, for the freedom we need. That's true for non-believers, fake believers, and real believers. If the Son sets any one of you, non-believer, fake believer... Genuine believer. If the Son sets any one of you free, you will be free indeed. So I would encourage you to abide in His Word daily for your freedom from sin. If you're not a believer here today, go home and read this Gospel of John. And then find other people, other Christians who know this freedom, and you ask them questions. How do I know this man, Jesus? We would even like to talk to you today after the service. Please come, come down and we would love to talk to you more about this freedom we know in Christ. So read this word daily for your freedom from sin. Listen to what Jesus says and humbly submit to his word. When you hear him speak in the word... Reading the Bible cannot amount to information transfer, but must result in spiritual change, Godward obedience, joyful worship. And whenever you're jarred by a stinging indictment of your, sin, of your sinful condition, let me encourage you not to respond as these Jews did to Jesus, where they started putting their confidence in the flesh. Trusting in the flesh priding themselves in their ethnic and religious ties. True freedom for, did not come for these Jews through being Jewish. Nor will it come to us 
by being American or by being a right-wing conservative. True freedom will not come through our ethnic or religious or political ties or even with others showing us favor in the world. True freedom will not come through our financial security or through changing our marital, our marriage status or through homeschool education or anything else we can create by our own doing. True freedom, namely the freedom from sin, comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. So let us beware of trusting in anything that comes from inside us or in anything we create and attempt to impose on others, even if for noble reasons. Our ultimate trust must be in Christ, who alone is able to rescue from sin and not in anything within ourselves. Just as I was reflecting on this, I think it has a word for us parents as well. This text means that we need not abuse our authority when correcting our children. Whether that be through a harsh word or a physical act or a threat or an overly strict home or even the silent treatment. None of those actions saved you from your bondage to sin. What saved you from your bondage to sin was a perfect execution of authority by the Father and the Son. The Father humbled, humbled, humbled Himself in giving up His Son, and the Son came to give Himself up so that we might be freed from our sin. The only thing that will deliver our children from slavery to sin is not our domineering attitudes and words and actions, but the preaching and the application of Christ's humiliation on the cross. So I would ask, these are questions I ask myself, how are you pointing your children to abide in Jesus' word? How are you abiding in Jesus' word as you correct them? Remember, it goes with us if we abide in it. True disciples aren't made through anger and threats. True disciples are made by helping them experience all that Jesus communicates to his followers about himself, namely the truth. And with that, Jesus promises freedom from sin. So build into your home when you're giving instruction, build the cross of Christ into your instructions to them and into your attitudes. Something else to consider, if if the freeing of people ultimately rests in the power of the Son, such that we never freed ourselves and could never free anyone else on our own, shouldn't this fill us with great patience and compassion for those who are still in bondage to sin? Never should there be a frustrated and overbearing spirit in us toward our non-Christian neighbors that says, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just believe everything I'm telling you? Just get on with the show. Never. They can't see that they're in bondage. We may very well be right about them and about Jesus if we're sticking close to the Bible. But how do you convince somebody they're in chains when 
the very slavery they sit in blinds them to seeing the chains. What's wrong with them is the same thing that was wrong with you before Jesus set you free. And nothing else opened your eyes but the word of Jesus and the Holy Spirit applying the word of Jesus to your wearied soul. Preach the cross to them. Preach the cross to them with patience and trust Jesus to do the work of setting captives free. Don't expect them to stop sinning before you offer them freedom in Christ. Only by embracing freedom in Christ will they ever be compelled to stop sinning. Only by offering them freedom in Christ will they ever have their eyes opened and the veil removed. So preach to them Christ. And should you run into a Jew, take them to this text. Take them to this text. It happens. When we were in Turkey, we're on a train from one city to the next. And we met a brother and a sister who were both Jews from New York. It happens. So we could talk to them in English. So if you meet a Jew, tell them that the true child of Abraham is not one who can trace his lineage back to the patriarchs. It's not one who can look down at his circumcision in the flesh or who can boast of his ethnic superiority to the rest of the world. The true child of Abraham is the one who depends on Jesus to free him from slavery to sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We pray that this week and next week's messages would would really come to bear on our lives, that we might grow in abiding in Jesus' word. We want to know freedom from sin, totally. We know freedom from its power already. We know freedom from its consequences. But we want to be totally free from even its temptations and its threats and its ongoing yuck. So please come and plant this word down deep in us and help us to see that in Christ we will know the truth and we will be set free from our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.